Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about autism and so much more. I've been thinking about labels, norms, and averages. I've been thinking about our society's obsession with what's normal and how often we mistakenly define normalcy by the mean. I've been thinking about spectrums, overload, and extreme sensitivity. And I've been thinking about my new favorite words, thanks to Eric Garcia, neurodivergent and neurodiversity. My guest today is autistic journalist and author of the new book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism conversation, Eric Garcia. Eric is the senior Washington correspondent for The Independent. Previously, he was an assistant editor at the Washington Post Outlook section and an associate editor at The Hill and a correspondent for National Journal, Market Watch, and Roll Call. He has also written for The Daily Beast, The New Republic, and Salon.com. He's a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Eric, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks for having me. So I want to start our conversation with why we're going to just jump right in. Why it's so important that the conversation around autism be changed and why it matters so much as to who has the power to define its language, its focus and its terms. Certainly. Well, I think the reason why I why I started writing about it was um, this goes yet to go back to 2015 when if you remember, there was that measles outbreak at Disneyland. And um, with a lot of kids whose parents just didn't vaccinate them. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, uh, if you remember, this is in 2015, you know, I'm a political journalist. And in the second, I believe it was the second Republican presidential primary debate, Donald Trump was asked about his previous statements about vaccines and autism. So, and he said, autism has become an epidemic and it is because any blame the vaccines and then but then more shockingly and more alarmingly um ben carson who was also a republican candidate for those who forget 2015 and 2016 because it was so long ago he was asked about it and he was a pediatric neurosurgeon and he you know backed down he kind of gave trump a pass and so what that said to me was wait like i grew up in southern california you know those people who aren't vaccinating their, their kids they're not republicans they're a bunch of liberal hippies you know and then Donald Trump, say what you will about him, he may be an unorthodox Republican, but he's a Republican nonetheless, right? So what that said to me was, uh, wow, we're getting a lot wrong about autism. And a lot of it is just, A, you know, the vac- almost any conversation you have about autism begins and ends with vaccines. And then afterward, a lot of the conversation goes toward focusing on a cure. You're seeing this in the United Kingdom. There's a lot of concern about the spectrum 10K and researching DNA. A lot of autistic people in the United Kingdom are worried right now that this will be that the research into DNA will be used to eventually eliminate autism, uh, despite what its defenders say. Uh, at this and so, but what it ultimately realizes is that the more that I came and I looked at the research and the history around autism is that this is just a criminally misunderstood concept. And a big reason for that is that autistic people themselves weren't included in the discussion. So unlike in the 1970s, when plenty of other disability rights movements sprang up and really mobilized and got things like the Rehabilitation Act uh, passed, um, autism was 
in the shadows because it was seen as a personal failing. It was seen as something caused by unloving mothers. So I'm a political journalist and a political reporter at the core of everything. So my answer was, okay, so if we've gotten so much wrong about autism, uh, just as far as our public knowledge, that must mean we have really bad policies around autism. So I hit the road. I went to Nashville, Tennessee. I went to West Virginia. I went to California. I went to Michigan. I went to uh, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I just tried to set out to see what is it like to be autistic across America? And how do our myths about autism fail autistic people as a whole? There's a lot there, and we'll unpack a lot of it. I want to start. Did I was that was that a good answer? No, it was it was a wonderful answer. Um, Absolutely wonderful. And and a a couple things that I'm thinking about are one the labeling of autism, right? And um, how that changed. And we can talk to a little bit how that changed in 2013, because you know, prior to that, a long time before that, it was yeah. connected with schizophrenia, right? And and it's made this progression, um, both from academia and science, but also culturally. And so, and I think it's so important for all the reasons you just mentioned. So maybe you could explain a little bit like what happened in 2013 and how and why that changed things so dramatically. So to understand what happened in 2013, we got to go back 100 years. Uh, a Swiss psychiatrist Perfect. by the name of... What? what? <laughs> Perfect. (laughs) Sorry. So to understand, you know, in 1911, I believe, Swiss psychiatrist Eugen Bloiler first used the term autism to describe a symptom of childhood schizophrenia. And the first time that the term autism would appear was in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders was in 1952 uh, in the section on schizophrenic reactions occurring before puberty. And it was cataloged, it cataloged the condition under the umbrella diagnosis of psychotic reactions in children. It appeared again in the DSM-2 uh, as a symptom of pre-puberty schizophrenia. It wasn't until 1980 that infantile autism finally appeared as a separate diagnosis from schizophrenia uh, in the DSM-3. And the conditions were very narrow. It had to be onset before 30 years, 30 months of age. Uh, Children had to display things like a pervasive lack of responsiveness to other people and exhibit gross defects in language development. So it was a very narrow thing. Then later what happened is it included uh, is later additions include uh, things like childhood childhood onset pervasive developmental disorder, later known as uh, PDD and pervasive development, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. Uh, And then uh, in 1994, you got things like Asperger syndrome. And it's also important to note that while the um, while the, you know, these medicalized terms were happening. They're only part of the story. At the same time in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, a guy by the name of Leo Connor was researching autism and his whole, and he thought of it as a very, very narrow type of condition. And he surveyed uh, mainly uh, uh, the, 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 he surveyed 11 children in his first study. Nine of them were Anglo-Saxon. Two of them were Jewish. And on top of that, 
eight of them were boys and three of them were girls. And why was that important? It was important because those uh, statistics, the, the, that the, that template would would you know lay the groundwork for who we thought could be autistic. Uh, at the same time, in his study, uh, Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact, he noted that while autistic children were born with, quote, an innate ability to form social contact with people, he also noted that, quote, there are very few really warm-hearted fathers and mothers of autistic children. Later on, he told Time Magazine that the children he studied were, quote, kept neatly in a refrigerator which didn't defrost and that created the term refrigerator mothers and you know at the same uh, all the while what happened was a guy by the name of brutal Bettelheim took that idea and ran with it uh in the united states at the orthogenic school in chicago and in his book the empty the empty fortress he built on that idea of refrigerator mothers and he said i state my belief that the precipitating factor in infantile autism is though parents wish that the child did not exist he compared the situations of autistic children to those of people he saw in auschwitz in the concentration camps he was jewish and he had survived the concentration camps all the while on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, Hans Asperger in Nazi-occupied Vienna, he was doing his studies on autism, and he saw autism as exi- existing kind of what we see it as today, uh, kind of a continuum. But, of course, you know, he wasn't a saint either. Uh, far from it. In fact, I would argue he was worse than Asperger because he likely – because he sent children to their death. Uh, even though he wasn't officially a member of the Nazi party, it really doesn't matter. You know, if you're sending children to their death to clinics, you know, you're basically a Nazi. Um, I don't care what your party affiliation is. So what happened, but what happened is that his research on autism existing on a spectrum was bombed or it, uh, you, you know, during, during world war two, or it just was in German. And it wasn't until a woman by the name of Lorna wing uh, translated his work it, from German to English because her husband John knew English that we really get the understanding of autism as this kind of spectrum condition and that goes to it so so that's a long way of saying that in 2013 what happened was all of these conditions autism PDD NOS uh, Asperger syndrome and a few others all come under this umbrella condition of autism spectrum disorder and that's really how we get there it's it's that aspect of your book is so disheartening to read and especially when you consider that so many of these experts we're not talking 100 years ago you know for some no. of them it's 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 30 40 years ago you talk about in connection with treatment as well um Ole Ivar Lovas and i was yes. thinking he was at UCLA when i was at UCLA wow and um, I'm not that old. Like, and it's like, <laughs> that That was just, I, I had to take a triple take on that to think, wow, like, this is what they thought at that time. And this is then how they thought it was best to approach treatment. And it really was just, um, just like mind boggling in the sense that, it, that how much has changed in such a short time. And thank goodness it has. And one of the, the real focuses of your book is talking about why it's so important to kind of have 
autistic people's input in driving the conversation and what happens when that isn't the case as far as treatment research and even funding goes. And so yeah. if you talk to that web a little bit, because I think that people don't consider that, like how impactful it is as to who is leading this conversation, what terms they're using and where the focus is and how that it all interplays upon each other. Right. So I think one of the things that you need to understand that that going back to our whole kind of convoluted and very, very truncated discussion of the history of autism, um, the fact that it was considered a symptom of schizophrenia, you know, and it was a, seen as a mental disorder or it was seen that seen as something that parents that it was the parents fault. Um, what that meant was autistic people were locked away in institutions or they were sequestered from society or they were seen as not as their 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 um their agency was discredited so they weren't included uh, in many of the discussions and neither were their parents mind you but what happened is that if you don't include autistic people oftentimes what will happen is it'll lead to really terrible outcomes so a perfect example of this is uh you know dr lovas's collaborator frequent collaborator bernard rimland who thankfully through the idea of, you know, refrigerator parents and the trash, but because he saw himself as more of an expert than autistic people, he frequently, uh, you, know, you know, he came up with some really bad ideas. He also promoted the anti-vaccine idea. He talked about, you know, these really kind of crank treatments. And I think what happens when you, in, you focus on the needs of parents or the needs of researchers, what happens is you wind up not listening or not focusing on what could help and help autistic people today. Because a lot of, a lot of, if you're just looking at autism through a clinical or a medical perspective, you wind up trying to fix it or eradicate it rather than trying to help autistic people live more fulfilling lives. So the stat that I always point to that, uh, that the United States in 2016 spent $364 million and that's public and private money on research on autism research. Um, and only 2% went toward researching lifespan issues. By comparison, that same year, the United States spent 35% on autism and biology and 24% uh, on risk factors. That is a really small number when you're thinking about it, when you're putting it in context on how much we spend on lifespan issues and services. When, you know, autism people spend more time as adults than they do children as they, than they do spend time hopefully being children uh and when we don't focus on what autistic people need here and now or what autistic people are saying that they need then oftentimes we wind up focusing on really, having really really skewed priorities and i think you even see this today because the big argument that people will say is that i get all the time on twitter or when i tweet about it or when i talk about autism is that well neurodiversity may be fine for you because you hold a job and you have you know you live independently and you can speak but what about my kid and my, you know, my kid can't speak or things like that. But my argument is that your kid deserves rights just as much as anybody else. And yes, it may take time to learn what, take more time to learn what your kid's needs are, but you can learn it. And, and you know, uh, there, there, there's someone who I follow on Twitter. Uh, uh, I think her name is Lauren, but she goes on the Twitter hash, uh, handle A-U-T-I-N. Uh, 
E-N-E-L-L-E. She noted that, like, you know, meltdowns are communication, and it's up to us to figure out how we can, you know, prevent meltdowns for autistic people. Plenty of autistic people die from suicide and heart disease and epilepsy. Um, those are things that we can do to help autistic people here and now. So I want those, I want autistic people to be the focus of it, what autistic people say their needs are rather than what other people say. So let's talk about the parents just for a minute, because it went from being autism being the fault of the parents, and then the shift of um, a focus on the parents and the parents having a major voice in where these um, dollars should be spent and where the focus should be. And and it got sort of um, lasered toward cure, which for a lot of parents, maybe, you know, you can understand earlier on maybe why that made sense and maybe maybe for some of the ones that are um contacting on twitter now right but that created this focus on um that the problem that you're talking about that we should stop trying to cure autistic people and instead help autistic people live fulfilling lives there's a parent that said um Kevin Stossman, you talk about director of the first center for autism and innovation. And he says, I would not change my son for the world. So I will change the world for my son. Um, So let's talk a little bit about how parents have been driving it. Um, The shift that we hope now is taking place and what's that looking like? Yeah. So I should say that like, I don't think parents are the enemy. I don't. There are plenty, as you know, as I write in my book, I, I interview plenty of parents who are great advocates like Kayvon Stassen. Um, and like, uh, Shannon Desroches Rosa, uh, there are plenty of parents who want the best for their kids. And I know because 99% of the messages that I get are positive, overwhelmingly positive and they, or people who are curious and who just don't know things. So I think the thing to make and to take into account is that because parents were blamed for things for such a long time, a lot of the work that parents did for a while was just taking the power back for their kids, getting them out of institutions, trying to get them an adequate education, trying to, uh, you know, get people to, you know, not blame them, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, and they made early strides. I don't want to take away from that. For example, uh, you know, as early as in the 1970s, Ruth Christ Sullivan, the founder of what would later become the Autism Society of America, she, uh, you know, made sure that in the Developmental Disabilities Act, which was signed by President Gerald Ford, her and a bunch of other advocates made sure that the legislation that you know the legislation specifically cl- included autism in the establishment and the protection of rights of persons with developmental disabilities. So they made strides and they were also, you know, they were helpful collaborators in including autism in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act uh, when it was reauthorized from being the ha- Education for Handicapped Children Act. So, but at the same time, I think that they were still focused on what they thought the main needs of autistic people were and what their loved ones were. And while that's important, sometimes those needs can be very harmful. Um, you know, this was the argument that was used to, you know, for Dr. Lovas's treatment where he would, you know, scream and slap where children would be slapped around or they would have electric shock therapy administered to them. It's the argument that parents still use when they send their kids to the Judge Rottenberg Center in Massachusetts, where uh, children have, are, you know, where children are, where shock therapy is administered to children when they're engaging in self-interest behavior. Um, that the United States, that the UN 
special rapporteur on torture calls torture and a violation of human rights. Uh, so parents can be good collaborators, but oftentimes I think that people misconstrue their needs as the needs of autistic people. And at the end, at the end of the day, when it comes down to the choice between whether we should focus on autistic people's needs or the parents' needs, I, th I think autistic people's needs deserve to be heard the most because they're the ones who had to live with autism. The parents are important, but they, they, they're only ancillary and they're only have to do this by second hand. If of course they're not autistic. Excuse me. So, I, so, so I think that I think that it ultimately, autistic people's needs need to be trumped. You talk about there was a radical idea proposed by Sinclair um, introduced when they said autism is a way of being. It's not possible to separate the person from the autism, and that this yeah. sparked a new debate in the movement about neurodiversity and around other defined disabilities as well: dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, and that normal variations in the human population. That they again they don't require a cure, but rather accommodations and acceptance. And and this throughout the book comes again and again, and seems to have been like one of the driving factors for you where you're like, okay, this is a real part of my identity. Yeah. Um, and, and aspects of it have helped create my success. And you give an example that I just thought was so um, vivid was the mm -hmm. idea that, uh, you know, some parents and some society are trying to change the child that's behind the face. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they, they want a lot of times I hear that, like, I know my kids, they, they say that their kid is trapped inside an autistic body, or they say that there's somebody, or, you know, even when I go back and I see, you know, when I rewatched uh, Rain Man and Tom Cruise says to Dustin Hoffman's character, I know you're in there somewhere and I'm going to get you out of there or something like that. There's this idea that autism tr is trapping your child or trapping your loved one who's autistic when really it is, it's an inextricable part of who they are. And it, it defines when people say, oh, don't let your disability define you. I let my disability define me all the damn time. Um, uh, I can say damn, right? No, you can. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it defines, you know, I, I think more and I've said this a few times, I, I think more about being autistic than I do uh, being autistic defines my day-to-day -day operations more than being Latino because race is a social construct, right? And so is disability in a lot of ways. But like when I think about, uh, well, disability is a social construct, but impairment is it? Like when I get up in the day, I have to think about what are the sensory things that I need to take into account? What are the things that I need to, how do I navigate the world? How do I make sure when I go on the train that I'm not going at a time when it's too packed or otherwise it's uh, when I go on the metro because otherwise it'll be sensory hell. How do I make sure that I wear the right clothing so that uh, so that it's not, uh, so that my skin doesn't clam up and it doesn't feel like sensory hell? How do I make sure that that, um, you know, I don't do too much so that I'm burnt out. How do I make, and then how do I socially interact with people? How do I talk with people? How do I make sure that I read the social cues so that I don't, um, miss things or that I don't miss what they're saying or that I don't hurt someone's feelings or that I'm, uh, you know, or that I understand what they're trying to say and I'm as clear and concise as possible. How do I do all these things? It's an, it's an everyday, uh, experience and it's in every moment and it's in every hour experience and that's not a bad thing it just means yeah. that i'm cognizant of it so like when i say when people say oh autism awareness i'm aware of my autism thank you very much um 
I'm guessing it's a, a challenging and a draining experience at some points, but it's also like a, an incredible, genuine relating to self, right? Yeah. Genuine relating to self and environment in the moment of noticing, like, how do I feel? What do I need? Um, how can I adapt and adjust so that I'm more comfortable in these environments and, and in these social interactions? Right. Yeah. You, it teaches you to be aware of your surroundings and it teaches you also not to be all, only aware of your surroundings, but aware of yourself yeah. and aware of what you need and aware that uh, your that your needs are valid. You know, I write about in the book, you know, for a long time, I didn't want accommodations at school uh, or at work. And it was because I wanted to fit in with other people. I wanted to belong with other people. And rather than asking for accommodations, because I felt like it would go out of the way to do that. But in many ways, being autistic and understanding and learning about neurodiversity made me recognize that my needs are valid and that my needs are, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of terms like high functioning and low functioning. You know, your discussion on, on accommodations, I think is one of the things that made me think the longest after reading the book um, yeah. about that, um, beginning with you saying that you loathe the term special needs. And so let's talk about that. And then the distinction between a right versus preferential treatment, because and why it's so important, because the idea that when you said, you know, I was at college, and I felt like I got there, so I must be good enough to be here. And that your kind of an attitude of some of the professors was, well, you're obviously smart. So you don't yeah. need accommodations. And I was just like, oh, it, it, I it was just a stick, like, you know, in my gut, as far as this is such a defining characteristic, I think, of so many people's experience who have um, disabilities, you know, and some disabilities that aren't recognized where no. there is this internal struggle and this external struggle about getting accommodations, asking for accommodations, not wanting to be the weirdo or the strange person or the, the person who needs it. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, it really needs to go. You really need to go back to talk about ableism, don't you? Yeah. Uh, you know, so when I talk about why I'm not a fan of the term special needs, it's because it uses the term special and it has the con connotation that um, you're getting special or preferential treatment when in many ways it's putting you on an equal playing field as your non-disabled peers and it's giving you the, the, the tools that you need to succeed and survive. Uh, so I'm not a fan of that. And I think that it's, and then also it seems like, I think also the term special needs also kind of connotates charity rather than justice. You know, um, I remember one time I was interviewing Senator Maggie Hassan and she once said that, you know, charity and justice are two very, very different things. Um, and I agree. Like, I think that disability rights is about your rights as a human being. Uh, and it's about who you are and you being entitled to certain things. Whereas I think that talking about special needs is not really a, uh, is seen as, oh, we're doing something nice for you. Um, and I don't need your charity. Thank you very much. I want you to treat me as an equal. And I want you to give me the tools and the resources to treat so that I can be equal to you. Um, and then to the point about, uh, about accommodations, I think that it goes to this idea that because resources for special education or for disability education have always been scarce. There's almost kind of this internalized guilt that if you're quote unquote high functioning, and I'm not even a fan of the term high functioning, we talk about that later. But like if you're quote unquote high functioning that, oh, well, if you ask for accommodations, you're taking accommodations from people who might quote unquote really need it. 
when, you know, we all kind of need it, you know, regardless of your quote unquote functioning level. And, uh, and I think what it also does is that it kind of reminds me of, you know, plenty of, plenty of people just don't want plenty of professors just don't understand autism. So they think that if you're, uh, that if you're somewhat successful, and I thought, and I thought that if you're somewhat successful, you must not need accommodations or you're not really disabled. When really, what is set, what 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 that reveals, it arguably, oddly enough, kind of reveals the opposite, which is that disabled people are capable of incredible things, and autistic people are capable of incredible things, even if they don't have the accommodations. So therefore, they deserve to have the accommodations they that are required so that they can re reach their full potential. But I think because we have this idea that autism means that you are unintelligent or unthinking or, or, or that you're uh, invalid or that you're not a human being, being, it leads to a lot of bad ideas. And what I should say is that like, this also goes for autistic people who can't speak or who have intellectual disabilities. I talk, I, I profile a guy by the name of Hari Srinivasan in my book. Uh, and it was important for me to profile him because he has limited speaking capacity, but he's able to thrive and succeed at Berkeley because of academic accommodations. Conversely, uh, a young man by the name of Drew Saviki, who I profile, he had trouble in college because he just had trouble with education and learning with math classes. And by all accounts, people would probably consider him high functioning. But because of that, it's made it really hard for him to pass college and really hard for him to get a job. So I think what happens is that we we almost kind of project our ideas of autism onto people as you know i was talking with m remy Ergo, an english professor who's autistic at the university of michigan and they told me that there's this quote there's this element of disbelief or a tendency to see students as whiners as being overly sensitive or as not wanting to deal with hard problems but no these are the things that allow you to deal with hard problems, so to speak. And I think that one of the main reasons autistic fear asking for accommodations is it feels like you're being asked for special treatment or you feel like you're the problem because you're asking for this specific, you're asking for this thing that's already set up to be to change for you. When really it's more of an indictment of academia for not being accommodating. Well, that's a long ass answer. I know. Well, no, no, it's a great answer. And I'm thinking there's so much wrapped up in it because you say autistic people have been forced to navigate a world where all the road signs are written in another language, right? So it's not accommodating in the sense no. of it's again, this idea of there's this mean and if you don't fit in the mean, well, we'll make our best effort to pull you back in, but we aren't going to really notice like that everyone that's, you know, outside the, the, that center line, um, has all the same rights to freedom and, and fulfillment of self-potential that, that all the people in the center line do. And that, so it's not an accommodation, right? And it's not, it's not those who aren't in that middle line to accommodate. It's, it's society's job to provide um, the road signs in everybody's language. And yeah. so I'm thinking about something you said earlier about diagnosis, and, and you talk a lot in the book. Again, this was super surprising to me. A lot of the misdiagnosis, not so much, but the late diagnoses where people aren't diagnosed till later on. And I'm thinking about it now in relation to accommodations, because at one point I remember you saying, you know, some of those people that don't get diagnosed or are misdiagnosed are the ones that actually could thrive and benefit most from the accommodations and they're not getting it, which is again then wrapped up in this idea of high-functioning, low-functioning 
mentioning. So let's talk about that now, and then we'll come back to the the conversation on, uh, around autonomy. Um, you talk about uh, this gal Bascom, and I thought she was just such a a perfect example for those of us who don't understand the situation. Um, as far as this surprising balance that she's creative of needing help with daily tasks and yet she's the executive director of of a nonprofit um, autistic self-advocacy network and is, is very yeah. successful in that um, so maybe in relation to her and then in your own experience and and why you've shifted away from using these terms high functioning and low functioning Julia Bascom is the perfect example of why I don't use the term high-functioning or low-functioning autism, because on the surface, she's seen as incredibly successful. Like I said, ASIN, the Autistic Self-Advocacy, is a major nonprofit. She's advised presidential candidates, and at the same time, she has a support person in her home. And it's not a but or a despite. It's a because, the only way she can do these incredible things is to have the support systems around her. Um, and even if autistic people don't advise presidential candidates, that's okay. They still deserve all the supports they ever, they, they need for the rest of their life. Um, and I, so I, I've come to not be a fan of the term high functioning or low functioning, because I think that it flattens the experiences of both groups that they, that the terms seek to describe, you know, I'm a journalist, right? And this isn't me taking a political stance. This is just me trying to accurately describe what people need or who, who people are. I think that if you call someone low functioning, you set expectations almost criminally low for them. And what it does is it almost says like, oh, well, um, you know, this person's low functioning, so they don't really need that much because they're never going to amount to anything. You know what I mean? Then on the flip side, I think that what you do when you say someone's high functioning is you erase the very legitimate experiences or the very legitimate needs that they have, or the legitimate accommodate or the or their or how you accommodate them. It erases their experiences, and at the same time, I also worry that it'll almost create this kind of tiered system with autism like oh well these people are high functioning so we should focus on them and not focus on the latter or we do the vice versa where let's allocate all the resources to the quote-unquote low functioning and forget the you know high quote-unquote high functioning autistic people so as a result i tend to prefer to use terms like high support needs or low support needs and even that it's in different areas right yeah as to where the people need the support yeah the needs oscillate depending on the situation right you know, as you talk, I'm just thinking, I'm looking at my notes, and I'm trying to blend it all together in the sense of how this fits in such an important sense for our conversation and, and for you in your book and changing the conversation around autism. And and I'm not sure how we're going to talk about it, but I want to dive into the idea of the the sort of accommodations, but the other side of it, that um, you, you talk about that you're constantly, an autistic person is constantly being measured and measuring yourself against the terms society has prescribed. And yeah. um, throughout the book, we hear of examples of masking, of accommodating a self to creating a, a passing version of oneself, um, especially true for women. Um, and this just rocked me that you said to be disabled is to constantly fear that it, any bad decision you make will cost you your autonomy, particularly when there's a historical precedent for institutionalization. So this is like huge, right? It's yeah. not just like, can I get to the party and, and you know, not feel too uncomfortable and, and, and not make myself out to be um, an outlier? Like, 
It's drastic. Yeah, I mean, let's look at the most. She's not a, as far as I know, she's not autistic, and I can't make any judgments about her. But let's look at the most famous person under conservatorship right now, Britney Spears. You know mm-hmm. that you know that in and of itself, the fact that she could have her rights stripped from her to the point that she can't even get married is uh, is terrifying. Yeah. And about it, she is a multi-platinum superstar. She's probably written the soundtrack to countless people around the world's lives. But she doesn't control her finances. Or her body. Or, or her body. Yeah. No, she, she, got a, she got a damn IUD in her, yeah. Her, her, yeah. her. You know, she's not allowed to have any more children. You know, now think about that and think about how many autistic and otherwise disabled people constantly live in fear and it was like for the longest time i was afraid of my family visiting me in my apartment or my dorm when i was in college because i was afraid that i would and, and and i have really good parents i have great parents i have a great family but i was worried that if i didn't do things to a t then i could then they would have me move back in with them or that i would have my independence revoked or i would have my and that's not necessarily about my parents it's just that like it's not a referendum on my parents itself. It's a referendum on that. Like I saw that that was always a possibility and it's something it's a, it, it's a real fear that in a legitimate fear that plenty of disabled people face day in and day out. And it, it and, and it's terrifying and it's, but you know, the thing of it is, is that, you know, that I say, and I read in the book is that, you know, there are plenty of neurotypical and otherwise disabled people who make bad decisions about their lives. And, I personally believe that making bad decisions is an instrumental part of being a human being. Particularly, you know, I'm 30 now. I can't, you know, I've I've thought about how many terrible decisions I made when I was uh, in my 20s. And I think everybody makes awful decisions in their 20s, right? So I think that um, the right to grow up is also the right to screw up. And I think a lot of times parents, I understand the impulse, especially in a world that's brutal or a world that's ableist. And if you have a disabled child who's, you know, a woman or a queer person or a person of color is a racist and a sexist and a homophobic world, I recognize all that. But that shouldn't cost someone their independence. And that should, or their interdependence, because like some people may need to live with their families or may need to do it, but they shouldn't have their independence revoked or their freedom or their ability to make their own decisions. Uh, you know, that shouldn't determine that. So there might be people who might need to live with a support person or live with their family, and that's okay. Or they might need home and community based services through Medicaid, but they shouldn't have their independence or their humanity or their autonomy stripped from them. Um, and that, that shouldn't lead to them like, like that one person who I profiled in the book, Lydia Wayman, winding up in a nursing home yeah. because she, uh, you know, because people didn't understand her. So I think that being independent and being who you are and being able to make your own decisions, that is, it's funny. We're a country ostensibly created under the the precepts of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But for some reason, we seem to create an exemption for disabled people and for autistic people. And my firm belief is that, yes, I understand all the things I'm about Thomas Jefferson and all those things, but maybe, and maybe it's a little too idealistic, but like I grew up believing that, you know, 
I grew up reading Tom, about Thomas Jefferson and all that, and my firm belief is that rights are either rights for everybody or they're not rights at all. You know, it's, it's funny because my husband and I were having this conversation last night about what is the value of um, our society and, and yeah. of America? And that's the one we espouse. And is that really true? Or is it, you know, what, what our gross national product is? And even if it is that, um, you know, is it of advantage or disadvantage to exclude the potential of outliers? You know, like, might we right. find out that even if, if, if the, the American dream isn't real and that's not what we care about the most, um, isn't it of, of potential, of possible advantage that really by elevating um, everyone's potential, that that really even is what boosts our, our GNP the most? So let's talk about a little bit about why it's so important, going back to changing the conversation, why it's so important to change it both on a, a cultural and an institutional level. Because as we've been talking, I think we've been peppering in a few things that are um, that you give a lot of attention to in the book, which is how the conversation impacts all these personal decisions for people, for autistic people, um, and how they're impacted by the politicians and the government programs that develop in reaction to the conversations as far as employment, as far as living situation, as far as what funds they're going to be able to get to um, execute their own agency, the right to agency, and then how they're going to be able to execute it with funds or not having funds. For instance, with Bascom, the, the, you know, she was able to have a friend create her own living situation where a friend was there to help her with a lot of the daily tasks. Um, for people that aren't in that situation well, where they also, have these choices about she didn't have yeah. a medicaid waiver for that you know yeah, yeah exactly um, you know these are things we, we can't i'm one of those people who you know i think we've you know in the last in the last year we've had a long discussion in america about racism right and i think a lot of people still think of racism as a matter of table manners rather than institutions and systems mm -hmm. and I get that, and I, and I absolutely believe that with racism, it's it, it, and with sexism and with ableism, it's always about institutions. But I, and I think that, and at the same time, and I'm, it's not a but; it's a, it's an and. I think that what would I think some people might miss is that there are is that politics and systems and institutions are a downstream of culture. Yeah downstream of what we think of autism and especially for something as personal as disability um culture and personal interpersonal relations are essential into creating policy the only way you know uh, the only way the ADA was really passed was because the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed was because of politicians who had a personal connection to disability. And in the same way, I think that you need to talk about, we need to talk about culture, and especially with autism, where for so long there were such bad ideas around autism and culture, and therefore they informed it. I'm a perfect example of how it informs culture is so, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, let's talk about the biggest institution, the biggest autism nonprofit in the world, Autism Speaks, was started by a guy by the name of Bob Wright. And I read about this in the book, who was the head of, and his wife, Suzanne, Bob Wright was the head of NBC Universal. So 
he knew the power of culture to influence policy. And he was only able to have that kind of political cachet because of his cultural cachet. And institutionally enough, he wound up influencing the ideas of autism of the future president of the United States, Donald Trump, because he had him on The Apprentice at the time. So it's important to talk about these systems. And it's also important to talk about how these systems are influenced. And if you have people who aren't autistic influencing the systems more than autistic people, then you're going to come out with this, with what parents or what loved ones or with what clinicians want rather than what autistic people need. And I think that we focus too much on what the loved ones of autistic people want rather than what autistic people need. I'm thinking about it. It absolutely does. And I'm thinking about an example. Um, I mean, I'm partially thinking about how, how I wish I could have an interview where we don't mention Donald Trump, but I'm, I'm thinking about, um, that no matter what the topic, um, but I'm well, also, yeah, well, like, that, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's indicative. It's important because like Bob Wright was ha put Donald Trump on the apprentice yeah. and he fed him ideas that eventually the guy became president of the United States and he ran on those ideas. Right. And and so do we really want him dictating policy for autism? I don't think so. Uh, but you, you sparked a, a memory in me of something you said in the book about culture and a, the, a huge shift has happened in culture recently. Yeah. And you talk about there being, um, and I, I'm not sure if he's a YouTuber, an autistic YouTuber, that you said, you know, he is so popular. I, uh, I think he's on YouTube. He might be on, on Snapchat or Instagram. But that, you know, he, decades ago, not that many, he would have been institutionalized. Right. Uh, who, is, who is this you were thinking of? You, you mentioned him in the book at some point. Drew um, Saviki? I, I think so. Was you he said he's non-speaking, I think. Oh, uh, was that Mel Bags or? Was, yeah, I think who, I think it might have been. Yeah, they, yeah, the late Mel Bags. They uh, they use they them pronouns, yeah. and uh, uh, you, you know, Mel is a perfect example. Like a few decades ago, they would have been institutionalized. Oh, Leo Rosa also is also is also that. Uh, but like his mom runs the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. But like, yeah, like it's it's really important to remember that not too long ago, the also the the only real routes for autistic people were to go undiagnosed because they were seen as too they were quote unquote too high functioning or they were institutionalized and it was because we were we had bad ideas about autism we thought it was caused by unloving parents we thought it was a mental disorder and even then people with mental disorders deserve rights too i don't want us to take that away from them like they deserve everything but you, you, you know it's important to recognize that when we have bad ideas, those bad ideas create bad, influence terrible policy. And it's the underlying argument why we think it's okay to pay autistic people below and disabled people below a minimum wage, for example. Let's talk about that a little bit, because you dedicate quite a bit of the book to that, um, housing yeah. and then also um, employment. But let us we don't have time for both. So let's tackle the, the employment a bit. Um, you know, the, explain a little bit about that, the appropriate wages and paying them subpar wages. Um, I just think so much in this book, people are going to be so surprised as to, you know, things that they thought maybe went on in the past that are still going on and being supported yeah. by government programs. Yeah, it was funny that when I, I tweeted on Labor Day that, um, you know, 
uh, it's still legal to pay disabled people below the minimum wage. And the thing of it is, is that it was a law that we all rely on that created that. In 1938, there was the Fair Labor Standards Act. It created all of the things that we kind of enjoy about American labor in the United States, from like a federal minimum wage to overtime pay. Franklin Roosevelt considered it some of the most important legislation he signed next to Social Security. But Section 14C of the law and allowed for employers to pay disabled people, quote, whose earning or productive capacity is impaired by a physical or mental disability, including those related to age or injury for the work to be performed below federal minimum wage. So right then and there, we create this, there's this law that is a staple of American labor and creates specific rights for workers that once again excludes disabled people and it's because we didn't think that they were capable of doing of doing that we didn't think that they were we don't think that they're capable of having of reaching the same potential as their um as their non-disabled or their non-autistic counterparts but the fact of the matter is is that autistic and then in the same way some of the biggest defenders of these programs are parent advocates because they say it gives them something to do or they see that there's that, that you know there's more to labor to their work than just giving them a fair wage that you know you know and but my argument is that work is work and work deserves to be compensated regardless of your of your disability level and you know incidentally enough some of the biggest supporters of ending some minimum wage labor are republicans governor greg abbott in texas has made it so that people who do work business with the state can't pay disabled people below the minimum wage uh People like, uh, you know, Governor Tom Ridge, who is the former Republican governor of Pennsylvania, is a big supporter of ending some minimum wage labor. Uh, a, a political appointee who was appointed by President Donald Trump uh, for the head of the National Council on Disability said that it was that it was important to have uh, to end some minimum wage labor. Uh, you know, even as his as Trump's labor secretary, Alex Acosta, defended some minimum wage labor. So it's so it's but it was this idea that. That was seen as a charitable thing to do at the time. That was seen as, oh, we're doing something nice for disabled people and allowing them to work. When really, the real reward of work is getting paid a fair wage. You know, in this conversation and, and the housing conversation as well, you think oh, there's so many areas where oh, people meant well or they were trying to do good. Yeah. And even within the conversation, people disagree as to like what yeah. the best solution is. And so I'm, I'm thinking about how then... Um, in addition to shifting the conversation, um, the best support of making changes that are um, the most supportive for autistic people, in addition to having autistic people be in the conversation, I know you talk a lot, a lot about the private companies are trying to step up. Um, yeah. And there are challenges there because the same with government institutions and government policy, you can imagine the same problems occurring as to the, the companies are thinking they're helping and thinking they're doing things, but they're, they're seeing it through a, a too narrow of a, a funnel. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of these companies want to do the right thing, and I give them credit for their for for trying to do the right thing and listening. But sometimes I worry that they might be too narrow in their scope, or they might think that autistic people are only 
focused on being able to do certain things and they don't actually include autistic people in creating the new hiring processes so oftentimes it's just guesswork or it's you know the, it's the loved ones of people who are autistic uh and while they're important they're only part of the story they're only part of the of the solution uh it really needs to include autistic people and also on top of that i think that they that we might not be factoring in whether autistic people want to be in leadership or want to work in management eventually and then on top of that we have, we have to focus on the autistic employers who are already at employed yeah, that's what I was thinking about, that it's one thing getting more autistic people in the door, but then once you have a diverse um, body of, of employees, how do you support and manage them so that everyone can, can do their best job? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's arguably more important than, you know, than getting people hired. Uh, you can have all the great hiring initiatives you want, but if people don't want to work or, or but if but if people burn out or they, you know, they either A, crash and burn or B, what my friend John Marble calls grow and leave, then it really isn't worth a hill of beans. So just in these last couple of minutes, maybe what have you found personally to be the most helpful accommodations and what have you found to be the most detrimental myths that still exist about autism? I think the the most helpful accommodations is just the beginning of just asking and just in asking what people's needs are because autism is a spectrum. I don't want to take that away that it is it and people have vast and diverse needs and those need to be respected. Um so just ask and the other thing is include in just including autistic people and I think the best way to include uh, and what was the second part of your question you what you felt like the, the biggest myths were the most mental myths that still exist I think the biggest myth we still exist is we still see autism as something that only affects um, white males particularly cisgender heterosexual when we know that there are plenty of autistic people of color. We know there's plenty of autistic women and non-binary people and transgender people. Uh, we know that autistic people work in every different type of sector and there are some that don't work at all. So I think those are the biggest myths. One that came out towards the end of the book was you talking about love and empathy and, and the false belief that people who are autistic people aren't interested yeah. and can't have relationships. And, and I thought the, the point you made about empathy was so poignant. And you said just because the response may not be appropriate in regard to being empathetic, it doesn't mean one isn't empathetic or trying to be empathetic. Right, no. And, and like one of the other things is that like – it's not like that can't be learned that if you learn that you might have hurt someone's feelings, or if you learned that you didn't say the right thing, you can learn to a, you can apologize and B, you can try to do better. It's not like those things are intractable, just like they aren't intractable for neurotypical people. I was going to say, yeah, there are, I spent most of my career working with neurotypical people on teaching them that how to be more empathetic and that they can say they're sorry and that they can realize that they yeah. hurt someone's feelings. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. I want to end with a quote you had from A.J. Link, an attorney from George Washington University, one of the people you talked to in the book. And you say, no one wants to be looked at as other or special or handicapped or whatever. It's tough and frustrating, but I hope that we can teach people that neurodivergent individuals are just different, not less. I absolutely agree. And, and A.J. said it better than you're doing it for sure with your book, with your life. Um, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking today. Such a real pleasure. You have an excellent day. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Eric. Bye. So great talking to you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.